We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Ambassador Fred Hoff. We discuss his recent New Lines magazine piece, Assad, the Shaba farms are Syrian, whatever Hezbollah claims, and revisit previous U.S. efforts at securing a peace deal between Syria and Israel. Our conversation includes Lebanon's position during these talks, and why post-Civil War sovereignty never in fact took hold. We also reflect on Ambassador Hoff's memories of my father while he was mediating between Lebanon and Israel over offshore oil reserves. Ambassador Hoff is diplomat in residence at Bard College. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. by saying that this is a real honor for me and especially on a Friday when I'm sure you have better things to do you're (laughs) talking to me so it it really means a lot and uh, I'm I'm in a way lucky because I've been following New Lines magazine since their inception months back and I read your articles regularly I've had the good fortune of actually publishing as well so I'm enjoying that outlet and it's it's great to see your words there and this most recent piece, Assad, the Shaba farms are Syrian, whatever Hezbollah claims. And the byline is the Syrian dictator dismissed Hezbollah's entire basis for being a Lebanese resistance, in quotes, in unsuccessful negotiations over a decade ago. I know because I was there. 21 years ago, my father's final months at the Lebanese embassy in Washington, D.C., the Syrian almost crisis and what to do now that the Israelis were leaving, leaving. Yeah. Those conversations were heated and there was this almost that the Syrians were more afraid than anyone else vis-a-vis Hezbollah and vis-a-vis that legitimacy. Did you sense that there was any willingness back then or was there perhaps more willingness to have a distant relationship yeah. with okay. Iran and in, in, at least in Lebanon or whether it's been consistent the whole time. This has been almost a, uh, a policy that hasn't changed much. Sure. Yeah, my sense is that uh, back, in the, uh, back in the 1999 era, the, the key difference between then and 10 years later when I did my peace mediation was that uh, Hafez al-Assad was in charge. Hafez al-Assad mm. was, the, was the senior member uh, in the uh, Syria-Iran partnership, and uh, Hafez al-Assad was the uh, was the final authority on what uh, what Hezbollah would do or not do, and uh, I think that changed. I think that changed over time. I think that uh, that Bashar uh, was more of a peer of uh, Hassan Nasrallah, and uh, had put Syria in in more, I think, of a subordinate position toward Iran. Right. So the shift comes really from Hafiz to Bashar. 
I think so. I think that's the key thing. Yeah. Right. And in, in back then, I know that this is Farooq Shara meeting with Ehud Barak and Camp David. There's yes. at least talks of a potential deal. Yes. Is there any moment where there was any sort of that Hafiz could pull it off? Meaning that Lebanon would be the next country to make peace if Hafiz al-Assad made peace with Israel. Or is that just not in the story back then, that the Syrians were just focused on Syria and Israel? No, I think uh, beginning in late 99 and on into uh, perhaps the first month or two of, uh, of 2000, there were very serious discussions um, uh, facilitated by the United States, hosted by the United States at uh, Shepherdstown yes. in, uh, in West Virginia. And I, I think those talks, uh, those talks were serious, definitely at the working level. Uh, what we know now is that when the Israeli prime minister at the time, Ehud Barak, arrived in Washington for those talks, uh, he, told, uh, he told Martin Indyk right at the outset, uh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't pull this off. I don't have the domestic support in Israel for a peace treaty with Syria that would entail a major territorial adjustment. Okay, mm -hmm. so those talks, those talks were doomed from the beginning. Uh, but my, my sense was that the uh, was that the Syrian side uh, really was quite interested uh, in seeing uh, whether or not a basis could be formed uh, for formal peace. And when that and when that went away, uh, and uh, Ehud Barak began speaking increasingly of an Israeli unilateral withdrawal from Lebanon. Right. This, this sent, I think, this sent the Syrians into the uh, dead panic uh, that you noticed uh, when, you were in, when you were in Washington, because, because now all of a sudden a serious piece of leverage they thought they had mm. over Israel namely their ability to control more or less the level, the level of Hezbollah violence uh, mm -hmm. toward, toward Israel, that this was, this was going away. And, and what to do about that became a, uh, a central fixation of Syrian policy at the time. So am I reading it right that once the Israelis unilaterally withdrew, leaving Shabbat, Qajar, the all, all this sort of other stuff that emerged from that withdrawal, that the Israeli withdrawal removed Syrian curiosity and at least distancing the Assad regime from Hezbollah, at least in Lebanon back then, that the Israelis may have gotten what they wanted, which is a withdrawal, but it, it at least made the Assad regime more reluctant. To sever ties. Yeah, the, I, I, I think I think the way I looked at it at the time certainly was that the uh, that the Israeli unilateral withdrawal from Lebanon was seen by Syria as part of a broader pattern right. of Israel of Israel withdrawing its its interest in a uh, in an agreement with Syria. Therefore, any any inclination Syria may have had at the time to rein in Hezbollah to somehow limit its activities would have gone away. 
so, um, and this incidentally was, was after uh, the sort of uh, last ditch meeting between uh, President Hafez al-Assad uh, and President Clinton right. in Geneva. And I believe that was in March, 2000. I think this when, is months before he passes away, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, a few, just, just a few months. I, I, yeah. I believe uh, President Assad passed away in June 2000. Yes. Right. But in any, in any event, at, at that meeting in March, President, uh, President Clinton uh, found himself induced to, uh, to present to the president of Syria a proposed territorial arrangement mm. uh, that departed significantly uh, from what had been discussed at Shepherdstown and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, President Assad at that point said uh, to President Clinton, obviously, uh, Israel is not uh, interested in peace and, uh, and basically uh, walked away from it. Was there ever a, a curiosity, at least on the American side, with having Lebanon, this is prior to 1559, prior to Hadid's assassination, right. that Lebanon would, that Lebanon's sovereignty could reemerge once the Syrians severed ties with Hezbollah and Iran. Was it in that sort of window that Lebanon's sovereignty was sort of discussed, if it was discussed at all? Or was it really just in plain terms yeah. a non-issue back then? Ronnie, I'm not sure if it was a non-issue or not. No. I must say that uh, in 1999, uh, 2000, when all of this was going on, I was, I was not a member of the United States government. So I was not privy uh, yes. to any uh, inside conversations that may have taken place concerning Lebanon. Mm -hmm. my, my sense, knowing, knowing the participants who were involved in all of this, was that the focus was, was exclusively on Syria-Israel uh, from, from the point of view of the United States. I think, I think the guiding assumption was that, was that Lebanon would somehow fall into place if, um, if an agreement could be reached. Between between Israel and Syria, uh, that Syria Syria would oblige its uh, its Lebanese partner to uh, to put together a negotiating team and in, and in due course uh, reach reach an agreement uh, with Israel. And I must say, I you know I think this was uh, this was undoubtedly the Lebanese position too. Right. You know, the, the Lebanese position yes. always was was very consistent. We will never be first in yeah. uh, in reaching peace with Israel. You know, it's possible we could reach it in coordination with Syria, simultaneously with Syria, or following Syria, but uh, but never never in advance. So I think Lebanese mm -hmm. governments have consistently, as long as there was a, a living, breathing peace process. Uh, Lebanese governments were, were consistently more than willing uh, to sit in the in the back seat uh, on on all of this and await await developments between uh, Syria and Israel. But I, I appreciate going back and remembering just how just how in charge the Syrians were when it comes to Lebanon. But yes. I'm gonna I'll jump ahead to the piece now, and this is in 2011, 2010, 2011. And you know what I really appreciate about this piece? It's storytelling. This is really just, it's really your story, how you remember things. 
And you're taking me into those meetings with you. So I really enjoyed reading it. And I'll, I'll quote you to you here. Uh, Assad predicted that a Syria-Israel peace treaty would be followed by a Lebanon-Israel treaty and that the losers, Iran and Hezbollah, would readily fall into line. I was simultaneously stunned and unconvinced. Still, Netanyahu would, days later when briefed on the meeting, declare the mediation to be at a serious stage and authorize his team to take next steps. So in a way, you're the middleman. You're kind of trying to get... and Sure. Yeah, sure. and, and Walid Madam is in the background of the piece as well. Yet Netanyahu wants the real sort of, he wants to hear it from Assad. And I like yeah. that you're taking us there, sort of that where you're, there's a climax to the story, that you're getting that, you're getting his words clear. Yeah. But 11 years later, at least when it comes to Lebanon, was there any, any potential for seeing Lebanon's sovereignty from 2005 until then, 2011, really take hold? Because I'm getting from the piece that even in those years, Lebanon's sovereignty is really not part of the story. And I'm, I'm coming back to Lebanon deliberately here because I'm trying to find any area where the Americans were actually at least, at least curious about what Lebanon would look like or could look like mm-hmm. once that relationship would change. And I don't know. And I, I'd really like to hear what your memories of the conversations back then. Was it sure. still, still really a, the Syrians have more leverage and we have to talk to the Syrians too when talking about Lebanon? And I, I, I include all the 2005, six, seven, eight, nine governments in Lebanon, that March 14 coalition that came and went. Mm-hmm. Was it still really Damascus has the final say? And therefore, they're, they're going to, you have to talk to them when talking about Lebanon. Well, Ronnie, I, I came into government uh, uh, for the second time in my professional life in, uh, in early uh, 2009 and uh, took over the, uh, uh, not only uh, Syria-Israel uh, peace process matters, but also Lebanon-Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and in this sense, yes. in this sense, the the Obama administration, I think, correctly uh, uh, elevated Lebanon a bit. Mm. Uh, there was there was there was no there was no idea in our minds uh, of trying to encourage Lebanon to get out in front of Syria on mm. peace process matters. This was this was just considered impossible uh, Syrian uh, influence uh, in Lebanon, even though the, the occupation, so to speak, had been ended years before after the assassination of uh, former Prime Minister Hariri. Still, Syria's influence in Lebanon uh, through Hezbollah, through other means, was, was, was very, very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, <clears throat> I spent a lot of quality time uh, in Beirut uh, with with your late uh, with your late dad and others uh, trying to uh, to mediate a maritime agreement right. uh, between Lebanon and Israel. Something that was done without reference at all. We still we still call Syria. your last name as if your last name is Line, and it's the. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so your name, whenever it comes up, well, line is attached to it. So. Well, it was a it was it was a fascinating experience. But uh, the, you know, the point the point I'm trying to make is that uh, is that is that we tried our best uh, to treat Lebanon as a party that had its own independent concerns and its own dignity. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think we, we succeeded, but at the, but at the same time, there was, there was no illusion that when it came to a, a prospective peace with Israel, uh, that Lebanon was still going to be in that uh, uh, proverbial backseat that, uh, that Syria-Israel uh, coming to agreement was the necessary precondition. Mm -hmm. Now, if that precondition had been met, and if things worked out in accordance with what uh, President Bashar al-Assad told me, then there, there would have been, I think, a really uh, positive enhancement of, uh, of Lebanon's sovereignty as a result of a peace agreement with Israel. Because by definition, uh, the so-called resistance would have been terminated. Uh, the rationale uh, for a large independent militia to, uh, to remain armed would have, would have disappeared. Uh, Lebanon would have entered into a uh, into a regular relationship with its neighbor to the south. There perhaps would have been provisions concerning Palestinian refugees uh, residing in Lebanon and what, you know, what would happen to them. There would be, there would be adjustments uh, along the blue line, right. uh, you know, and, and there would have been a maritime uh, agreement. There would have been finally an official boundary uh, on land and at sea between between Lebanon and Israel, I think I think this would have been all to the good for Lebanon, and it is uh, it, one of the one of the primary sources of my disappointment uh, that this that this peace mediation between Syria and Israel did not in the end succeed. Uh, is 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 that Lebanon uh, obviously. Uh, did not become a beneficiary of these efforts. What strikes me in the piece is the certainty Assad speaks with, that he is willing to go all the way when it comes to Hezbollah and Lebanon. And I, yeah, I found that- Hezbollah and, and you know, on the, on the one hand, when he, uh, when he told me, when he said, Mr. Hoff, uh, this land is Syrian, this land is, Syrian, right? When we have we, when we have recovered our land, you know, then we can have talks with the uh, with the Lebanese about adjustments here and there, about private ownership of certain plots of, of land and all right. that. But but this land is Syrian. His statement of fact didn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody, I think anybody who has who has studied this issue, uh, starting with the United Nations, you know, comes, comes to the conclusion uh, that this area in question, the, the Sheba farms and associated areas uh, was definitely under Syrian sovereignty. What, what surprised me was his readiness 
an absolute lack of hesitation, uh, whether he was conscious of it or not, that he was that he was undermining the entire rationale for Hezbollah's armed status. That I found surprising. Exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll take liberty here. I'll quote you to you again. This is sort of <laughs> later in the piece. Among other things, Al-Assad assured me that Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah would liquidate his organization's resistance, in quotes, and fall into line with the provisions of a Lebanon-Israel Treaty of Peace, an accord that would, in Al-Assad's view, automatically follow the signing of a Syria-Israel Treaty. I asked Al-Assad if Nasrallah renouncing resistance, quote, would first require that Syria formally transfer the Shabaa farms and associated territory to Lebanon. His answer was an unambiguous no, it would not. Is it just that he's trying to gain something from this conversation with you? Because it sounds like a completely different Assad, that he's saying something, like you just said it, he's willing to go all the way. And that, to me, would be a red line for Hezbollah in Iran, that he's almost yeah. political suicide. And I, and I use the word polit- political sort of carefully here, that this is survivability at home, and he's, in a way, willing yeah. to, to take risks. Is this a, just a matter of bluffing, that he's telling you something that he doesn't mean? Well, I, you know, I... Ronnie, Ronnie, I, I literally, I, you know, I literally, I, I, I did, did not have then and I do not have now the ability to read the mind <laughs> sure, of, of uh, Mr. Al-Assad. <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, what, what, I can, what I can report accurately is, is what he said and the, very, and the very direct and unambiguous manner mm. in, which he, in, which he put, in which he put things. Now, I was, you know, I, I was surprised by his undermining of the uh, the resistance rationale, you know. But to be honest with you, I, I went away from that meeting thinking, you know, a this is this is extraordinarily interesting. I mean, suspicions confirmed about the whole uh, Sheba Farms episode, but it's also it's also a bit troubling. Because does the president of Syria truly believe that Iran and Hezbollah would take all of this lying down? Right. That 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 they would that they that they would that they would say, oh oh dear, you're you're you know you're getting your real estate back. Well, uh, Mabruk, in that you know in that in that case, uh, let us stand down. Let us disarm. Uh, we Iranians, you know, no longer need an arm of the Islamic Revolution inside Lebanon, and we Hezbollah, we are prepared to disarm once Lebanon arrives at a peace treaty with Israel, and and simply function as a normal political party. I had I had doubts about that proposition, mm. and and frankly, I I would have felt better. I would have felt better. If President Assad had said to me, look, look, the Iranians, Hezbollah, they're going to have real problems with what I'm doing here. But I'm doing this for the interests of Syria. And if forced, I will fight to uphold the interests of Syria. I would have felt better 
if he had said something like that yeah. instead of instead of giving me you know what i feared was was a sort of blue sky assessment of of, of how everything would fall into place once right. uh, once syria and israel came to closure it almost discounts iran's interests in lebanon sort of speaking on behalf of something that's beyond him as well so that's what struck me as very odd that he'd be willing to say that in blunt words that he's willing yeah. to go all the way yeah. and yeah and it's months before the protests begin in syria it's unfor- uh, you know it's uh, it's only it's only weeks, weeks. it's right. only it's only about 3 weeks later uh, that the unarmed peaceful protests begin and uh, and protesters are finding themselves uh, subjected to uh, lethal, deadly fire by uh, Syrian security forces. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was roughly three weeks after the uh, after my discussion with uh, President Assad. As much as you'd like to say about this topic, was there any follow up discussion on this on this issue once the protests began, or was it just a it was off the table at that point. That um, you know, right, right after the meeting, um, about two days later, I uh, I had a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his team in in Jerusalem, and uh, we discussed it at length. Hmm. Uh, my uh, my conversation with uh, with President Assad. Uh, you know, Netanyahu, as I mentioned in the article, uh, characterized the mediation as very serious. And he authorized his team to uh, make next steps. Our hope, our hope on the American side. Now, bear in mind, up till this point, this had all been shuttle diplomacy. This was, right. basic, yeah. this was basically me traveling back and forth between uh, Damascus and, and Jerusalem. Our hope on the American side was that perhaps in April or May of 2011, we could bring uh, Syrian and Israeli teams together, perhaps in an Eastern European location, mm, mm. where they could where they could finalize uh, the text of a treaty of peace uh, that was already going back and forth between them in in, mm. in the form of an American draft. Uh, but but you know once once the shooting began. In Syria, uh, things came to a screeching halt. Right. Uh, those of us who had been invo- uh, involved in this effort were, of course, hoping that uh, what had happened initially in Dera in, uh, and in Damascus would be, would be one-time incidents, uh, that the president of the Syrian Arab Republic uh, would, would exercise peaceful and diplomatic means to try to address the uh, the concerns of his citizens with uh, with police brutality, with um, illegal detention, and all the rest, and then get things back on track. You know, I I I I will regret to my last day on this planet that that never happened. It never happened. Uh, the Syrian uh, government, uh, you know, for whatever reason, doubled down uh, on this strategy of uh, of responding to peaceful protest with uh, with lethality. And uh, you know, a decade a decade later, 
look at Syria and see the results. This story, unfortunately, is Lebanon's story as well. And that the, the regime in Damascus has been either directly or indirectly involved in Lebanese affairs for, for over four decades, at least. There's a heavy involvement, even as their army withdraws. And by 2011, 2012, it's, it's a very strange uh, situation where Lebanese are looking up at the sky and wondering if the Americans are going to be hitting Syria after the chemical weapons attack and the red line and that, the very sensitive months and that happened. Mm-hmm. Lebanese are looking up and wondering what's going to happen. So it's, it's felt here. And like you said, 10 years later, Syria has been destroyed. That regime is, is there. It's still technically yeah. in, in charge of whatever is left of what they're in charge of. It's not, not doing much in the way of governing, but it's, uh, it's still right. in its seat, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. And in the meantime, Lebanon has gone through hell as well. Yes. And I, I know that you're not, I know that you're not in government. I know that you're an, you're an academic, Bard College, and I'm going to ask you as much as you'd like to say. I'll, I'll say this as, just as, as someone who's really curious about how you see recent events in Lebanon vis-a-vis U.S. policy. And the reason I'm going there specific is it's been almost a year and a half now that there's been a, a protest movement that demanded many things that I think are in sync with what the Americans would want to see in Lebanon basic things like reform, accountability, anti-corruption slogans. I think that that genuinely resonates. Let alone chance for the first time against Hezbollah's leverage in the country, which is an unusual occurrence. And it could just be chance. It could just be frustration that's being vented without much happening on the ground. But yes. nonetheless, there is, there, is a, there is a marked shift in attitude, at least, when it comes to Lebanon's discussions on Hezbollah. And it reminds me of that opening that Lebanese could talk about the Assad regime in 2004, five and six. Lebanese are more willing to talk about Hezbollah today, but the threat is there. And I think in the background, there is a willingness in some corners in Lebanon to talk about sovereignty once more, maybe coming from odd locations. It's the patriarch talks about neutrality certain political figures may sort of regurgitate that as well at times, but the conversation is there. And now we have something that's unusual, a return to Europe, Jawad Zarif, I think it's Rob Malley and his team, the Americans and the Iranians are speaking once more about that relationship. And the reason I'm going very big right now is I'm curious, at least in that big dance, is Lebanon a remote concern today. <laughs> and I ask it really in, in basics that is Lebanon's sovereignty really just not an issue? That in those conversations, in any, in any discussion with a country that has heavy influence in Lebanon, like Iran, does Lebanon come up? Or do you think it comes up? Or is there any moment where sovereignty in this country is even is even brought up, at least in terms of trying to shield Lebanon from what's happening? Or is it just not there altogether? 
and I, I, I don't know anyone better to ask this question than you, because you're, you have, you had one foot in one and you have now both mm. feet out. Both and, feet out. Yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you're familiar with this terrain. You're intimate with it, whether or not this is just a fait accompli when it comes to American interests, at least in seeing Lebanon in the years to come, knowing that there's also a real genuine appetite for moving on in this country, yet it doesn't happen. And yeah. it seems to not happen largely because of those broader problems, less to do with local concerns. So anything well, Ronnie, you'd like to Ronnie, say? Yeah, it, Ronnie, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question for me to answer, uh, you, you know, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I do have both feet very much outside of government now. I am, uh, I am a, a professor, believe it or not, <laughs> at, uh, at Bard College in, uh, in, up, in upstate New York. Um, I, I, also, I also have to make an effort when speaking about Lebanon and American policy uh, to separate uh, wishful thinking mm. on my part from, from what, is, what, is, what, what, what can ob objectively be observed mm -hmm. about the, uh, you know, the deliberations of the, uh, of the new Biden administration. Yes. I, I mean, I certainly hope you know, as, as someone, as someone who, who loves Lebanon, as someone who is uh, more than appreciative of the uh, minimum 150 year legacy of Lebanese immigrants to the United States enriching my country in countless ways, all right? The, these are things that, that make me hope fervently that the Biden administration will take a careful look at Lebanon and try to do some things that will that will help. Okay, I think you know. I think I think certainly Lebanon now, among other things, is is going through a a monumental uh, humanitarian crisis. I think the United States uh, can help with this. Uh, the, the Lebanese armed forces with which the yes. United States has had a very positive relationship for decades now is in a position where it's finding uh, difficulty paying the troops, getting the fuel, keeping up stocks of ammunition. Uh, you know, this is, this is something, yes. this is something the United States uh, can address. Now, I, you know, I, I am told uh, that these things are under, under discussion in the departments of state, defense, and elsewhere, I I do not know if uh, if the U.S. is uh, is on the verge of a decision with any of these things. I you know I certainly hope so. You know, President Biden has been has been very clear in terms of what his priorities are, both mm. both both in uh, domestic and foreign affairs, right? The Middle East per se uh, does not rate very high in those, in those priorities. And I, you know, I, I, I think uh, there's much to be admired in a, uh, in a public figure who, who really uh, exercises discipline in addressing his, his or her priorities. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think it's also easy to see where places like Lebanon and Syria are connected to those 
priorities. Right. Uh, connected to the restoration of, uh, of American leadership in the world, okay? And I, I think, you know, the administration is only a couple of months old. It is certainly entitled uh, to, to an intensive and somewhat extended policy review uh, before, it, uh, before it goes into action in various corners of the world. Uh, but I, but I, but I certainly hope. And and if I had to, if I actually had to bet on it, um, I I would say that uh, certainly, certainly, uh, before long, uh, you're going to see the United States uh, doing some positive things to help the people of Lebanon. Without taking too much more of your time, I know I've uh, you've been generous. You've given me a little more than we agreed to, so right, I appreciate right. that. I, just a a curiosity. More curiosity than anything, post March 14, 2005, there there seemed to be a very, very active uh, American, at least Jeffrey Feltman as the ambassador in Lebanon, seemed sure. to have more more direct involvement, at least in terms of trying to gauge what was happening on the ground, and that there were people willing to speak, and these were primarily from the usual political class in Lebanon. Today, it's a very different attitude towards these leaders. I think the population is largely fed up. But 15, 16 years ago, it simply wasn't the case. And you could have that kind of communication, a back and forth exchange. Today, I'm guessing, and you tell me if if you see it the same way, I'm guessing that the reason why there's no apparent dialogue is that this has largely remained a leaderless movement in Lebanon that you don't have sort of the kind of leadership that maybe a country would want to have when it comes to discussing policy. And and, am I getting that right? That that's part of the perhaps why we don't see and we don't hear much when it comes to this protest movement and American engagement compared to the March 14 protests and and the months thereafter and the very, very concerned and very active American uh, engagement. Well, Ronnie, there you know there may be there may be uh, there may be something to that, and I would certainly yield to uh, Ambassador Shea, who you know who clearly has the job of uh, of interacting uh, mm-hmm. on a daily basis with uh, with Lebanese political leaders. Uh, but I think there is a among people in the United States, especially in government, whether it's in the executive branch or in the Congress. Uh, those who have taken the time over the years to familiarize themselves to a degree mm. with, uh, with Lebanon and with the way it is governed and, and all the rest have generally come to the conclusion that the Lebanese political class per se is incapable of reform, mm. simply mm. incapable of reform. And, and this goes directly to your question of, okay, at, at this point, who do you really connect with? Right. Uh, who could, who could, who could make, make, make a difference? Who, who, is, who is truly on the receiving end of anything the United States tries to do mm-hmm. in, a, uh, in a positive manner in all of this? Um, so I would, I would hope 
you know, for, for example, in, uh, you know, the Agency for International Development, just as an example, uh, there are ways being examined to reach out directly uh, to Lebanese NGOs, to, to young Lebanese who, who, are, who are trying their best uh, to, change, to change this system from the bottom up, okay? There may, be, there may be more traditional ways to address the problems of the Lebanese armed forces, mm. for sure. Uh, but, but in terms of, of how the United States assists and who is on the receiving end of that assistance, I, I do think, and I, I regret to say this, that the government of Lebanon per se presents, presents a real challenge, a real, a real problem uh, to anybody who wants to help. We've spoken, we've exchanged emails. Lucky I met you once in Washington, D.C., maybe now seven or eight years ago. It's been a while, yes. We had a nice exchange in your office at the Atlantic Council. And um, I know that, well, I've heard it in different Zoom exchanges and webinars that you've shared some stories about your friendship with my father, a professional friendship, more sort of in, at least a geopolitical friendship, perhaps. <laughs> but there was there's something there. I've never really had the chance to ask you this. If, if you could share maybe a memory that resonates today or even an anecdote, um, it, it makes me so happy when you reference the Alaskan model that he was speaking of in terms of oil and yeah. gas reserves that sort of give it back to the population. Don't put it in the hands of the political elite. That kind of story, it resonates with me because I remember him trying to think about these things. If there's anything you can share about an interaction with him or, or anything when it comes to my father. Yeah, Ronnie, the, uh, you know, the one thing that, uh, that always impressed me uh, about your dad, whether, whether he was serving as ambassador in Washington or later as a, as a senior advisor to uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Saad Hariri at the yes. time, was his uh, was his sense of was his sense of humor. This this was a this was a genuinely genuinely funny man uh, who who just absolutely refused uh, to take himself seriously, <laughs> and, and 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 the contrast between that and what you you know what you typically find at the at the upper levels. Of uh, you know Lebanese policymakers and parliamentarians and so forth was uh, was stunning. Your your dad was my was my principal interlocutor on the Lebanese side when I when I began the um, the maritime mediation yes. between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, Mr. Hariri was still the uh, was still the prime minister, and uh, he designated your dad as my principal point of contact for this. And I, I do remember our, our, our first conversation where he, I mean, he was a tough, he was a tough uh, negotiator. He was not the least bit uh, hesitant uh, about uh, putting Lebanon's position right out there on the table very explicitly. Uh, but we, got, we did get into a discussion of, okay, if all of this works, if we can come up with a mutually agreed maritime separation line, if Lebanon can launch, uh, you know, licensing procedures 
exploration and actually begin begin to uh, receive revenue uh, from natural gas exploitation. I said, uh, Hamid, what what in your view would this mean for Lebanon? And 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 he said, Aha! He said, This this is the question. He said, I have been studying the system used in the state of Alaska in the United States, whereby revenues from oil, and we're talking big money here, revenues from oil go to the residents of Alaska in the form of personal checks from the state of Alaska. And he said, Fred, uh, you know, my sense is that, uh, you know, if we're going to avoid the spectacle of all of this money somehow disappearing, this is the way we're going to have to do it. <laughs> and I will, I, will, I, will, I will never forget that. And uh, God, God, God bless his soul. I wish he were, uh, I wish he were still with us because um, very, very hard uh, to, find, to find anybody better than uh, Hamid Shatta to, uh, to represent the interests of Lebanon. That means a lot. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you mentioned his humor. It oh, was a very this is a funny man. Yes. Some, somehow, sometimes even unintentionally hilarious. And I, 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 yeah. I remember once in Washington uh, meeting with him at the, uh, at either, at, either at his residence or uh, in the embassy. I guess it was in his residence. And at the time, uh, uh, scientific studies had been issued uh, to the effect that uh, margarine, margarine, which yes. people had been using for years as a, as a supposedly healthy substitute for butter, uh, margarine was suddenly found to have, uh, you know, uh, numerous uh, bad side effects. <laughs> <laughs> And your dad was absolutely outraged about this. He said, he, he said God damn it, I've been, I've been eating this stuff. I've been suffering from this stuff for years and years and years. And now they tell me it's poisoning me. And he went on and on. And he had us, there, there were a small handful of us, and we were, we were all practically on the floor with laughter. I mean, That's he, funny. He, he was a, a stunningly humorous person. It means a lot. Th- thank you for sharing these things. You know, I, I always like to hear about him through people like your, just in general stories about him that I that don't, I don't always know, and I know him spreading his margarine with pain, and now I know why because he <laughs> too late. He found out way too late. No, he was he was a man with an extraordinarily. Uh, he was a tough. He was tough, but uh, but he he also had an extraordinarily sweet disposition when I when I say he was a man of uh, of great humor uh, the humor just uh, just just infused his character this was not just a matter of being able to tell a joke uh, you know with good timing and a nice yeah. punchline he yeah, yeah. he was a he was he was a very he was a very sweet human being and he's uh, he's greatly missed he cared so much about this country and yep. I, I it's infectious. Uh, th- that kind of passion for Lebanon. And he really believed in reestablishing Lebanon's sovereignty. Yes. I think that's the dream unfulfilled. That's the post-war Lebanese experience that just, that should have taken hold and it didn't. I agree. 
Ambassador Hoff, I, I really appreciate your time tonight and, and hope we can do this again at a later point. Ronnie, it's been, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to see your face, hear your voice, and uh, I do look forward to seeing you again before long. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.